Today's show is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code UNIVERSE at checkout to get 10% off. And by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial at audible.com universe. The most difficult conversation in human history occurred 27 years ago. It happened on August 25, 1989, and a lot of people had been preparing for it for a very long time. Nine years, in fact. Every bit of that planning had been very much needed. The problem with the conversation was that it was long distance. Really, really long distance. The party placing the call would be Voyager 2, the one-ton spacecraft with the 12-foot antenna that had already reconnoitered Jupiter, Saturn, and Uranus and would be making a final flyby of Neptune. The party receiving the call would be the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. Voyager 2 was never intended to get this far. Once it was done with Jupiter in 1979 and Saturn in 1980, it was supposed to power down and drift forever. But it still had plenty of gas in its tank, thanks to an onboard plutonium-powered generator that could keep it running for a full half-century. So after Saturn, the engineers looked at one another, shrugged, and gave the ship the go for Uranus, a destination it didn't reach until 1986. After Uranus, well, what was three more years to Neptune? Now the ship had arrived. It was early morning in JPL's mission control, where engineers had been up all night eating pizza and drinking coffee, and where more pizza was on order for later in the day, and champagne was on ice in a back room. Champagne not to be opened until the spacecraft had done its work and the data and the images had come in. The Secret Service was also hanging about because Vice President Dan Quayle, the chairman of President George H.W. Bush's National Space Council, planned to come by for a handshake, a photo op, and a look at the pictures. Finally, not long before dawn on the warm coast of the North American continent, the images did start coming in from the frigid world where the sun shines with only one nine-hundredth of the power it does on Earth. The signal arriving from space was beamed out of the spacecraft with a power of just 20 watts, less than that of a small light bulb in an ordinary refrigerator. It sped across the 2.8 billion miles of space to the big, hungry radio antennas waiting on Earth, a trip that took it four hours and six minutes, even moving at the speed of light. By the time the signal did reach Earth, there was almost nothing left of it its light bulb's worth of power down now to the equivalent of one twenty billionth of that of a watch battery. But that was enough. The antennas gathered it in, the algorithms amplified it, and the software interpreted it, converting it to 800 horizontal lines on a cathode screen. Each line then had to be converted into 800 dots, which the New York Times helpfully explained the next day were called pixels. Each pixel was assigned a luminosity value from zero, which was pure black, to 255, which was pure white. 
the very smart men and women at JPL had already taught the computers what the value of each dot meant, what chemical in the Neptunian atmosphere should produce that level of brightness, and what color that pixel should thus be. At last, the millions of dots resolve themselves on the dozens of screens in the JPL control room, and what they revealed was the full, blue, brilliant face of Neptune, the last true planet in an outward march of planets that begins with the small, hot rock of Mercury just 36 million miles from the blowtorch of the sun and ends here, billions of miles distant, with a gas giant four times the diameter of Earth, 17 times the mass of Earth, and with 100,000 times the atmospheric pressure of Earth. Neptune, the scientists learned, is a world where cloud-top temperatures plunge to minus 360 degrees, but where internal temperatures rise to 9,200 degrees. It's a world with the fastest winds in the solar system, tearing through the Neptunian air at 1,300 miles per hour. A world with 14 moons and five rings that are so faint and fragile they're not rings at all, but mere arcs that reach partway around the planet and then give up the chase. It is most important, though, our outpost world the last known planetary colony formed by the sovereign monarch that is the sun. It would be too much to say that the sun saved the best for last. It didn't. Nor did it save the biggest, that would be Jupiter. Or the prettiest, that would be Saturn. Or the most promising, that of course would be Earth. But it saved the one that by its very remoteness helped advance the science of astronomy in ways a close-up world never could. Researchers needed new skills just to discover Neptune. Engineers needed new strategies to go visit it. And the effort, in both cases, has been worth it, teaching us more than we could ever have known about the science at the solar system's fringe. We'll come back to Neptune in a moment, after some words from our sponsors. Here on planet Earth, we are constantly discovering new clues about our origins. Origins are important, and if you're thinking of starting your own business or brand, you understand the importance of a strong debut. Get started the right way with a website from Squarespace. Squarespace offers customizable designs so that you can easily tailor your website to fit your needs. With their drag-and-drop tools and modern templates, they make it easy to build a site that looks professionally designed regardless of skill level. No coding required. Plus, you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial site today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code UNIVERSE to get 10% off your first purchase. While there's nothing quite like gazing up at the planets and stars in the night sky, sometimes we need to find entertainment here on Earth. Now you can, thanks to Audible. 
Audible has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products of all different genres to choose from. You can even take Audible on the go by listening on your smartphone, computer, or tablet. Listen to books such as The Martian by Andy Weir. Adapted into an award-winning film, The Martian tells the harrowing tale of astronaut Mark Watney, who is accidentally left behind by his team with few supplies and little hope of returning to Earth. Will his ingenuity and endurance be enough to overcome the impossible odds against him? Find out for yourself. As a special offer to my listeners, you can get a free 30-day trial today by signing up at audible.com universe. That's audible.com slash universe. Neptune is close kin to its sister Uranus in chemistry, in mass, and in appearance. It's roughly 80% hydrogen, 19% helium, and the rest trace chemicals. But one of the most important of those chemicals is methane, which absorbs light at the red end of the spectrum and reflects it back at the opposite end. That gives both planets their signature blue hue. Neptune's blue is a deep azure compared to Uranus's lighter cyan, but in both cases, it's the methane that's responsible. Uranus and Neptune are near twins in size, too, 31,000 and 30,000 miles wide, respectively. If there are significant differences between the two worlds, and there are, they have to do with distance. With Neptune lying a full billion miles deeper in the solar system's wilderness than its sister planet does. Neptune is in fact the first planet not to have been discovered and recognized by the naked eye, or even with the aid of a telescope, but by the basic, head-crackingly difficult business of arithmetic. Galileo is thought to have seen Neptune through his telescope on the evenings of December 28, 1612, and January 27, 1613. At least his notebooks indicate that he spotted an unidentified point of light at a spot in the sky that modern astronomers have calculated Neptune would have been occupying on those dates. But whatever he saw, he dismissed as a star, and not a terribly interesting one at that. It wasn't until 1821 that French astronomer Alexis Bouvard was studying Uranus and drew up what were then the most precise measurements ever of its orbital path. Human mortality and Uranus's 84-year orbit being what they are, Bouvard could not hope to study the planet throughout even a single circuit, but he didn't have to. As long as his observations were good, he could extrapolate the entire route from just a few degrees of its arc. Bouvard made his studies, crunched his numbers, and drew up his chart, and then, a very thorough man, came back a few months later for more observations to confirm that Uranus was where it ought to be. It wasn't. Arrogant, perhaps, but not wrong, the astronomer concluded that the problem wasn't with his equations, but with the planet. Uranus had strayed from where it belonged. Something, he surmised, was gravitationally pulling it. It took until the 1840s when two other astronomers, Britain's John Couch Adams and Francis's Urbain Le Verrier, followed up on Bouvard's work. 
studying Uranus's orbit in more depth and predicting where they should find the as yet undiscovered world that was producing the gravitational perturbation Bouvard had first seen. Ultimately, Le Verrier urged the Berlin Observatory, which had a far more powerful telescope than either France or Britain, to search the sky for the theorized planet. On September 23, 1846, the Germans found it. 12 degrees from where Adams had said it should be, and just one degree from where Le Verrier had predicted. For 152 years, the men were credited as co-discoverers of the planet. But in 1998, Adams was posthumously stripped of the honor, with Le Verrier getting credit both for the precision of his math and for the initiative he showed in bringing Berlin into the game. The initial names proposed for the newly discovered world were uninspired. One camp favored the planet exterior to Uranus, and another wanted Le Verrier's planet. The first one was rejected for just plain badness. The second was a no-go with the Brits, who were not about to let Adams go unrecognized, even if his 12-degree miss was so wide of the mark. Finally, Le Verrier himself proposed Neptune, the Roman god of the sea, which honored the mythological naming traditions of the planets. The Japanese, Chinese, and Koreans went along giving the planet names that loosely translate as the Sea King Star. There was not a great deal more Le Verrier and the rest of the astronomers of his era could determine about Neptune, save that it existed, that it was 30 times farther from the center of the solar system than Earth is, that it takes 165 years to orbit the sun, and then it had at least one moon, and a big moon at that so big that it was spotted by British astronomer William Lassell just two weeks after Neptune itself was found. Better telescopes and the venerable Voyager were able to learn much more. There's Neptune's zippy day for one thing. The planet takes just 16 hours to rotate once, but that's only an average. A lot depends on where you're standing, assuming you could stand on a gas giant at all, which you can't. But the very fact that Neptune is a gas giant means that there is a lot of slip and drag in the atmosphere when the planet rotates. So the average 16-hour day becomes 18 hours at the equator, but only 12 hours up at the poles. Neptune's axis is tilted 28 degrees, which is awfully close to Mars's 25 degrees and Earth's 23. As with Mars and Earth, too, this means that the planet has seasons, though the changes are subtle with the sun so far away. Still, if you lived on Neptune, you'd have plenty of time to learn about each one. A 165-year orbit means each season lasts more than 41 years. The planet's fine, busted rings were first spotted in 1968 by an American astronomer from Villanova University. In the 1980s, other astronomers noticed that stars that passed behind Neptune flickered off as if they were being eclipsed by a thin ring, but then back on earlier than they should have, as if the ring was incomplete. Voyager 2 resolved the matter, observing five partial rings during its flyby. One of the arcs was named the Le Verrier Ring, 
at last giving the man who discovered Neptune a chance to tag the planet with his name. The other was named after Adams, Neptune's sorta kinda co-discoverer. But lest anyone doubt whether it was the Frenchman or the Brit who still had primacy in this pair, the five arcs that make up the Adams ring were given the decidedly Gallic names Courage, Liberté, Egalité One, Egalité Two, and Fraternité. Neptune's flock of 14 moons sounds like a pretty big brood, and at least compared to Earth's lone moon and Mars's too, it is. But 12 of the members of the Neptunian litter are little more than cosmic rubble, most less than 100 miles across and one just 12 miles. They're called moons, yes, but you could just as easily call them rocks. One other, Nirid, is 210 miles in diameter, almost big enough to collapse down into a proper spherical shape, but not quite. Triton, however, the moon discovered in 1846 just after Neptune itself, is a very different story. Measuring 1,674 miles across, it's a comparative bruiser representing about 99.5% of all of the mass of all of Neptune's moons taken together. It's about three quarters the size of our own moon, and thanks to its ice-covered surface, it would also be six times brighter than our moon if it could somehow be towed to the inner solar system where the sun shines as brightly as it does here. But Triton, of course, gets no such love from the sun and that shows. Surface temperatures there fall to minus 391 degrees, making Triton the coldest place in the known solar system. And yet, in small ways, Triton stirs all the same. Voyager discovered dark streaks on various spots of Triton's otherwise ice-white face which looked for all the world like stains from sooty geysers that blasted into the sky and settled back down to the ground. It's possible that these geysers are true volcanoes, the result of gravitational squeezing by Neptune and its other small moons. But Voyager scientists suspect something simpler. Even at such great distances, light and trace heat from the sun can penetrate the Triton ice, warming volatile chemicals beneath and causing them to burst upward. If those chemicals contained carbon, they would leave just the kind of dirty fingerprints on the surface that Voyager observed. Once Voyager 2 slipped by Neptune, it passed beyond what many people think of as the territorial waters of the solar system. Yes, there's Pluto, but in 2006, what had once been the ninth planet was demoted to a mere dwarf planet. While that was a disappointment for people who prefer the old nine-planet model, especially when that ninth planet is one as small and cuddly as Pluto is, it did give astronomers and spacecraft builders a certain kind of bragging rights. There are eight planets, they could say, and we've seen them all. That bragging, however, increasingly seems premature. The case for Pluto as a real-deal planet improved in 2015 
when the New Horizons probe flew past and revealed a complexity and dynamism that astronomers never knew existed. This past January, researchers from Caltech observed a peculiar clustering in the Kuiper Belt, the band of comets, dwarf planets, and other icy objects that surround the solar system. That, they concluded, could only be caused by an as-yet-unseen, entirely new planet, one with 10 times the mass of Earth, orbiting the Sun at 20 times greater distance than Neptune's. And then there's the Kuiper Belt itself, a distant ocean of the deep solar system that earthly ships have not yet sailed at all. The idea of Neptune as the solar system's last important mile marker is, more and more, being seen as an outdated one. There are many more worlds that circle the sun, and many more secrets they surely hold. Next week, we'll look at some of those worlds, and we'll do what we can to unravel their mysteries. I'm Jeffrey Kluger. Follow me on Twitter, at Jeffrey Kluger. This has been Time Magazine's podcast, It's Your Universe, produced by Panoply.